Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see everyone who is able to gather with the saints uh, this morning. Uh, for the sermon, we're going to be continuing in the first book of the Psalms. Uh, not everyone who's here has been able to be a part of that from the very beginning, um, but the Psalms uh, are organized into five books, which is something that's not very well known about the Psalms. Um, and they're a really, really rich, unique writing within the biblical uh, books. Um, I guess the first question of the lesson is, how would you define faith? Like, what is faith to you? Uh, If you take away external works, acts of obedience that may manifest inner faith, uh, if you take away words and verbal interactions or teaching, what are you left with? What, What is faith? Right? That's really the book of Psalms. You're left with the, the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalms really give you the purest, clearest view of what faith is when everything else is gone. And you're not so much thinking about applications externally, but the difficulty of the Psalms is when we're looking at and meditating on the Psalms, we've got to put ourselves into the frame of mind we're making the most valuable applications. They're applications of faith, heart, and understanding of God. And those things are what fuel and really directly contribute to our desire and our comprehension of obedience to God that produces that obedience that comes out of or from faith, as Paul described in Romans 1. Uh, and 16. The quotation of this uh, title, Resist Him From In Your Faith, comes from 1 Peter 5. We'll talk about that more at the end of the lesson. Um, but that, that's the idea of these three psalms. And uh, I don't think we're going to be here past like lunchtime, so I know it's three psalms. It may seem like we're going to be here for like two hours, but we'll try to do less than two hours, maybe less than one hour, if we can do it in that frame of time. Um, One quick thing by way of introduction, Uh, we are in book one. Uh, Psalm one and two serve as the cornerstone of the whole book of the Psalms, but especially of book one. There's two primary blessings in the first two Psalms that I think are really important to remember uh, consistently. They they bookend, meaning they, they begin and end with something that ties them together, and that's a blessing that's pronounced, a promise that's pronounced. Psalm one begins, blessed is the man, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then there's other blessings that are pronounced. He's going to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. His leaf does not wither, or the leaves of the tree do not wither, bearing fruit in its season. Whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are promised to not be like that. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Uh, nor in the assembly of the righteous, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Those are, it's just a series of promises. The book of Psalms puts that to the test, and it defines what is that blessed condition. What does that mean? Uh, it reveals the nature and relationship between God, the blessed man, and the wicked, and everything is seen in relationship to God's glory. The second psalm talks about the conspiracies of the wicked who don't want to be in subjection to the Lord and God invites them to come to his anointed king in Zion 
tells them exactly where to find him. The last part of that psalm says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the two blessings are, blessed is the man who does not internally go into the place of the wicked, but stays with the Lord and delights in him to know him, who follows him and walks in his way and meditates on him. That man will be blessed, but the wicked will perish. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Brings us to Psalm 11 through 13. We'll see this continuing those, those themes. I've broken this down. Um, these psalms we'll see are actually very similar to each other. What I'd like to do is show how the psalms are each independent prayers, but those independent prayers actually build ideas and themes progressively. Uh, I've made note before that the psalms actually tell a story, and all five of the books really tell one cohesive story, but when, within each book a story is told that progresses that greater theme. So 11 is going to be our assurance in God himself. 12 will be assurance in God's word. And 13 will be assurance in God's salvation. And each psalm is going to start with assurance despite something. So let's look at Psalm 11, 1 through 3. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This psalm is interesting. Uh, the psalmist actually is not praying as I guess I would define prayer. Uh, he's more meditating on God. So in these seven verses, he never actually refers to God in a direct sense. He never says you or your. He says the Lord. So it's almost like a very meditative psalm. Interestingly, this is uh, a theme in the psalm. So Psalm 3, verse 2. The psalmists are continuously in circumstances that look hopeless, and it makes the psalmist, the blessed man, who is David, uh, makes him look defenseless. Like there's nothing that can be done. So in chapter 3, verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Chapter 4, Psalm 4, verse 6, many are saying, who will show us any good? The idea is we're, we're defenseless. Who can possibly help us in these circumstances? Chapter 11 is the first time advice is given to the psalmist that seems well intended. Notice the first phrase, in the Lord I take refuge. The first blessing, or second blessing, of the first two psalms, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The term refuge is rarely used, the Hebrew word, in any other book of the Old Testament. Very, very rarely. That is one of the primary words used in the Psalms consistently throughout, especially in book one. Is the man of God still blessed, safe, protected, and secure, even when things look hopeless by appearances? As the Psalm continues, the answer will be yes, uh, but notice what, why they're giving this advice. They're saying, flee to, the, flee to your own mountain. Because the wicked, they're making their arrow ready to shoot in darkness. You don't even know when they're going to strike. And the foundations are being destroyed. So what, can, what defense does the righteous have anymore? And the idea of the wicked dwelling in darkness is also a theme. If you look at chapter 10, verse 9, he lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. 
The reason I started the lesson with a quote from 1 Peter 5, resist him. Does anyone remember what Peter is just got done talking about when he says resist him? He says Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When the psalmists talk about the enemy or the adversary or the wicked, any of those three things, it can be difficult to say to think like, well, am I supposed to talk like this about people? It's always a type, a, a, a shadow, in a sense, of our view of Satan and the working of Satan in an ultimate sense. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, but against principalities and powers and the forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Right. So in the Psalms, the idea of the wicked laying in secret, we don't know every moment we're going to be tempted. We don't know when Satan is going to choose to strike. But in Ephesians 6... He assures us Satan is actively scheming. And because Satan is scheming, the exhortation is always stand firm. Always be equipped. Think about Jesus as well. Do you remember a time when Jesus received well-intended advice from a close friend of his that turned out to be the advice of the devil? (laughs) And he was talking about going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And he spoke affirmatively and confidently. That's the way of righteousness. Peter took him aside and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this will not happen to you. Hey, looking after his best interests, right? Seems like that's good advice. You'll be safe if you don't do that. So don't think like that. You remember Jesus didn't say, Peter, Peter, Peter. Bad advice. He says, no, get behind me, Satan. Because... Why? You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Why is the man blessed in this situation? I'm sure they're right. It looks like the foundation is being destroyed, but the man who refuses the counsel of the wicked and meditates and delights on God's ways is able to see through those deceptions and see their source, but to continue to see the protective value and purpose of God's living character promises four through seven the lord is in his holy temple the lord's throne is in heaven his eyes behold his eyelids test the sons of men the lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates upon the wicked he will rain snares fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup for the lord is righteous he loves righteousness the upright will behold his face so each of these psalms they have Assurance in God despite something deceptive, but they have then confirmed assurances that they draw even closer to despite that. Right? So 4 through 7, God is in his temple. He's on his throne in heaven. He's active and purposeful with men. He hates the wicked, will punish, is righteous and loves righteousness. We're going to talk kind of through those uh, as we talk about this. First thing, though, is what's, what's the real problem? Is the problem really that the righteous don't know when the wicked will strike? Or is the problem that the wicked don't know when God will strike? Look back at Psalm 7. The Psalms are not chronological, but they never are without the ideas established beforehand. There is a purposeful progression, although they're each independent Psalms, There are building ideas. Look at chapter 7, verse 11, 
God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. So is the problem that the wicked are about to succeed in attacking the righteous without them knowing it? Or is it that the wicked don't see how God will strike and is ready? The idea of Psalm 7 is God's prepared. God has an armory of preparation, and he has indignation against wickedness. And you look at verse, uh, verse, verse 4. Is the foundation of the righteous really being destroyed by the wicked? Can the wicked really touch the foundation of the righteous? God is in his holy temple, hidden out of the view of the wicked, in a place they can never approach. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. His judgments have not been affected. His promises are high and out of their sight. If you look at uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 5, talking about the wicked, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. The problem is the wicked do not realize nothing they do will ever undermine, touch, or destroy the inevitability of God's judgment. Our task is to see that the flourishing of the wicked is not truth. This psalmist is still prospering and blessed because his foundation is not set in an earthly hope. Five, four, and five. God is purposeful. God's not just withdrawn with his arms crossed and David's just kind of on his own, just as Jesus was not on his own. God is as active as ever, and the problem is the wicked suppress the activity of the almighty and living God. God is purposely testing and dealing with men. The idea if he tests men by his eyelids, have you ever been in like Wendy's or McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, and you're looking at their menu, and you've got to like squint to see and read the menu and the prices? The idea is like you're trying to focus your attention on something completely and you're kind of putting everything else out of your view. That's the idea is God is fixating his gaze on the righteous and the wicked. It's not like he's ignoring the circumstances. He sees it all and he's dealing with it all and he's being purposeful in it all. He's trying to bring people out of the condition of violence, out of the condition of wickedness, and God's patience is not a lack of power. God is passionate and purifying. The idea of testing is the idea of he's trying to purify. Verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. God will destroy the wicked. I don't think this is said from the psalmist to the wicked person. It's more, just as Psalm 7, it's for the psalmist's own sake. Do you think he's going to tempt himself toward wickedness? If in his mind he confirms to himself, anybody over there, there's literally going to be fire falling from the sky like on Sodom in that position. So I'm just going to go ahead and stay over here in this position where I know I'm safe. And I'm not going to go over that way. How much safer in holiness would each of us be if we were able to see the consequence of wickedness so clearly? This is not an uncompassionate, bitter pronouncement on the wicked. It's a personal understanding 
that if anyone stays over there, God has reserved and given assurance. This is what's going to happen. I'm telling you, I would be more passionate in evangelism. If when I saw people in their sin, if I saw that, I need to pull them out of the fire. Because if they stay there, there's one way that this is going to end. No other way. We've got to have more confidence and assurance in God's promises. And the final verse, God is righteous. He's faithful to his character. He's uncompromising in his character. We're going to see that at the end of uh, chapter 13. The Lord is consistent, but he protects his investments. He loves the righteous. It is not God's desire that the righteous fall and succumb to wickedness or fall into the deceptions of, of falsehood. God protects his investments. We need to realize how jealous and protective God is of our connection to him, right? Things you love, people you love, when they're distressed, that isn't just something that you allow to be put out of your mind. When your children are being harmed, or God forbid, if your child is being abused by somebody, then you're just going to sit around, be passive and complacent about that? You protect the people you love. The psalmist is reminding himself in his meditation, God will not neglect to protect his children. He's not some passive, faraway God who gives no concern. These circumstances are going to change. The upright will behold his face. Chapter 12. Assurance in God's promises, despite those who turn and give into falsehood. Uh, Chapter 12, uh, 1 and 2. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Think about how David starts this prayer. This is an O Lord, God of heaven. See how personal and raw this is? Help, Lord, the godly man ceases to be. This is urgent. God, act now. The Psalms are so visceral and honest. There's no keeping up formalities or keeping up appearances before God. It's here is something raw and real. God, I need your help now. There is urgency and and honesty with these psalmists in their relationship to God. The other thing, too, is look at how as we go through this, the psalmist will respond to what is said in verse 1. But here's the problem. When people fall away from God, what does that tend to do to your conviction and passion for the Lord? Especially if it's somebody that you had some trust that they were going to press on, persevere, and endure. Inevitably, that's going to impact you, right? But in verse 2, it doesn't say, my, this is discouraging. His passion isn't withdrawn from God. He reminds himself, falsehood is so evil. The people who are turning away from God are giving in to deceit. This is the form temptation takes. People who give in to temptation, when I give in to temptation, you remember in Genesis chapter 3 how Satan presented his case to Eve? Was it like looking awful and disgusting and abhorrent by appearance. No, he said, I've got something. I've got a good deal for you. And in fact, God gave you a deal. I've got a better one. And the consequences that he said were involved in his deal, 
Can't trust that. It's not, not, it's not real. Temptation will always come in flattering form. There's always something hiding under the surface. This man is blessed because when he sees others falling into temptation, he gives no consideration. He reminds himself of just how evil and deceitful that flattery is to even overtake the righteous. Continue reading 3 through 8. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep him, keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Just note with verse 3. Go back to Psalm 5, verse 6. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Uh, verse 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Uh, Psalm 10, verse 7, his mouth is full of deceit. Our curses and deceit and oppression under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. The, Psalm, the first book talks more than any other book of the Psalms about this idea of words that entice that sound good, but the psalmist constantly affirming it's just a lie. It is just a lie. And God, destroy the lie. When God comes in judgment, truth will prevail and every lie will be undone. Why is the blessed man blessed? When every, everybody else is falling away all around him, which makes God look weak and powerless. Because by meditating on the law of the Lord and delighting in his ways, he remembers God's ways are so pure. And as he sees the deceitfulness of the wicked, he realizes there is a dramatic difference between what people say and the trust you can place in people compared to the trust you can place in the Lord. And so when he sees people falling away, he doesn't get discouraged. He draws even closer to the truth. His passion toward the Lord is kindled even more fiercely than it was before. And in his mind, it affirms even more strongly just how pure God is in comparison to how impure the human condition is. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Watch your heart carefully, for out of it spring all the issues of life. The other thing is with this being a stumbling block, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 42 and 43, Jesus is talking about stumbling blocks, causing people to stumble. And I mentioned in Psalm 5, that the psalmist thinks like Jesus, that there are, are moments in the New Testament like windows into the world of the Psalms. Here's one of those windows. Jesus says it is better that somebody have a millstone hung around his neck and he be cast into the sea than he make even one of these little ones stumble. But in Mark's gospel, he goes on to say, it's better to lose any member of your body to, than to be thrown into hell where there is unquenchable fire. Same idea as Psalm 11 and 12. God, destroy these things. Destroy these things. So in verse 3, he doesn't withdraw from God. He says, God, act. 
The psalmists don't view God as inactive and passive. It's so important we recognize God is a living and active God. He wants to act, and his patience, we must never take his patience as a withdrawn sense of having no compassion, God never going to act, and here we are just kind of living our own lives, kind of on our own, and here we are in this world filled with lies, and what are we to do? God will act, and he is active in this world. He will destroy lies. And the problem in verse 4, as it is in Psalm 10, verse 4, the thoughts of the wicked are not raised upward to God. That's the problem. So he withdraws to God specifically, and look at verse 5. He remembers God's promises that are relevant to the situation. If you remember in one of the sermons I preached a while ago, I mentioned pocket promises. I know it sounds kind of childish and strange, but the idea of like carrying God's promises with you, like knowing something God has said that is relevant and just, man, I'm going to remember that. Here it is. Verse 5 is God speaking. This is the first time in the Psalms, outside of Psalm 2, that God himself speaks. And just like in Psalm 4, tremble, do not sin, meditate upon your bed, and be still. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness to the Lord. Keep focused. Keep fixated. He remembers that God has promised because of the devastation of the afflicted and the needy, God's going to act. He's going to bring the needy uh, into the safety he longs for. So three through seven, God will respond to the afflicted. He will act on the hope he gives. And he speaks pure, proven words. Verse six, you cannot trust the words of people. And this is, by the way, the importance of as we practice what we believe is from the Bible, that we make sure our practices are only based in truth. Because people can say a lot of things. They can have a lot of opinions. But if it's not based in the word of God, it's just empty. Only God's word and his word alone is trustworthy, pure, and incorruptible. So in verse, verse 6, the idea is God's words are so incorruptible. It's like silver. If it's refined over and over again. It's only more valuable every time. You can put God's word to the test. The purity and the glory and the value will only be proven more and more and more in trials. Trials draw out our inner desires. When we suffer, it exposes things within us. But it also, in trials, God works to strengthen the power of our connection to him in heaven through his word. Keep holding on to God's word. It will never fail. Chapter 12, verse 1. People fail. The flesh fails. But the things of the spirit are incorruptible. We can trust God. Verse 7. God's going to preserve his people forever. But the wicked, they strut they act like they're in control because vileness is exalted. Philippians chapter 1, 27 and 28. Um, you don't need to turn there, but Paul told the Philippians, he was praying that they would stand firm in one spirit with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Same idea as this lesson. But he said them doing that in the midst of opposition was a sign of what? Destruction and perdition for the wicked. But for them, of righteousness. 
Verse 8 is not just an affirmation of a truth. It is, you know what the problem is again? Again, the psalmist acknowledges the real problem. The problem is not that people are falling away. The problem is vileness is being exalted and it's holiness and righteousness that needs to be exalted. Remember Psalm 8. God has established strength in who? The mouth of babes and nursing infants to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. This psalmist will not cease praising and serving God because he knows the problem is the wicked are not being faced with God's judgment. And when we give in, when people at work gossip, then I gossip with them. When people complain and I begin to complain with them, when people are profane in their language and I'm profane with them, forget it. There's no God. Chapter 10, verse 4. All their thoughts. There is no accountability. It's just not real. Folks, if we act like the wicked around the wicked, shame on us. God will not be seen as a living God. The psalmist understands his responsibility to reveal the character and nature of God's glory. I don't say that strongly to cause you to withdraw or me to withdraw because I struggle more than anyone else in those things. But just like the psalmist, we've got to understand the necessity of seeking God in the faith delivered. If this psalmist could have this assurance without knowing Jesus as clearly as us, why does it seem like this is some far away, unattainable attitude to have? How much more did the Apostle Paul have this assurance taken to a new place? The problem is we think the faith is so much weaker than it is, and it's this problem that causes that. And the psalmists hated that God would look weak because of the compromises that are made by God's own people. We must realize we can be strong in the strength of the Lord. We can put on his armor. We have got to expect one another in faith, with mercy, with compassion to be exactly the people that God has called us to be because we are weak, but he is strong. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. and My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So something about the Psalms. There are things that the psalmists say that are just really difficult. Um, they say things that sound like a lapse of faith or like they're withdrawing their faith. This might sound weird, but the psalmists always write presently out of a type of perfect faith. They may reflect on times when they lapsed in their faith, but at the time of the writing, the present writing is always a full form of faith in whatever sense that could manifest in the writing. And I, this here, I think, by initially reading, it's easy to think that him saying how long means he's now beginning to not trust God. But the reality is he's going through ongoing, unjust, and intense suffering. And he's going to trust God fully even despite those things. It's very easy when suffering injustice, when it's just not going away, 
especially when the intensity just keeps cranking up. And here I know God's promises. I have assurance in God's character. I know that God will fulfill his promises. I know he's act. He's going to act. And here I am, stuck in a position that seems to contradict everything that God said. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed man will prosper in all his ways. The wicked will be with chaff, like chaff before the wind. Well, where's that? Sometimes knowing God's promises and having assurance in them actually becomes its own added trouble. It becomes its own stumbling block if we're not careful. But think about it like this. When I lived in Florida with my family, we weren't financially like really well off at all, but my parents would count pennies to the point where we would go to like Disney World every other year can't quite remember how often we went, but it seemed like we went frequently. Uh, when we would go to Disney World, it was maybe like a two-hour drive. And I, on the way, I might say something like, hey, how long until we get there? Am I saying something because, am I saying that because I'm no longer trusting my parents that we're getting there? No, I'm just really excited about getting to the destination, and my goal is not to just sit in the car for two hours. I want to be at Disney World, right? And if anything, I say how long because of how much I believe we'll get there. I know that, but I mean, I want to get there now. (laughs) Think about how different that is if in that two-hour car ride, my parents hear me say, how long? And then after they tell me, I unbuckle my seatbelt and open the door and jump out of the car. Insanity, right? And you imagine like they would stop as abruptly as possible and start screaming at me like, what are, you, what are you doing? The psalmists don't view abandoning God as an option. There's a big difference between asking how long because I trust God. I trust his promises. And it's just the reality is, the raw reality is that a world filled with lies, with God's patience and loving kindness, the righteous will suffer as the target of all wickedness until the day of his promise is coming. Uh, Look at Psalm 6. This is actually said in Psalm 6, verse 3. It talks about how dismayed he is. He says, how long at the end of verse 3? Verse 6, I'm weary with my sign. Every night I make my bed swim. My eyes wasted away with grief in verse 7. But look at verse 10. Just like Psalm 13, this is not said out of a lack of faith. He knows his enemies will perish. But here he is for a time stuck. Jesus, when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples came to him. There was a boy who had a demon. They couldn't cast it out. And the man confronted Jesus and asked, if you can do anything, you know, please help us. Jesus sighed deeply within his spirit and said, how long, you perverse generation, will I be with you and bear with you? Bring him to me. Even Jesus said, how long? But Jesus knew his suffering, that condition, it had an end. Look back at Psalm 13. The latter part of this psalm is so important. The psalmists never speak in these very honest and raw ways without following with assurances of faith or even starting with assurances of faith that balance things to help you kind of key into the fact that they're not speaking out of a lapse of faith. They're simply acknowledging a reality and its difficulty. It says, I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. He knows God is purposely restraining himself. Really key window for this kind of thing, John chapter 11 with Lazarus. Do you remember when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick? What did he do? Because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he purposely restrained himself. He stayed where he was for two more days so that Lazarus would die. And then he says, this has happened that God may be glorified. He precedes that in verses 9 and 10 saying, you've got to walk in the day while, while it's day. And if someone's walking in the day, they'll not stumble. But if somebody walks in the night, they will stumble because they're in darkness. This psalmist is not allowing his suffering to put him into darkness. Therefore, he does not stumble. He knows that God is restraining himself for a very good reason. But in verse 3 and 4, that does not change the urgency. In verse 4, he acknowledges, if my enemy overcomes me, he will rejoice. Key thing with that, God will not let the wicked win in the end. This psalmist knows that his enemy rejoicing over him, that's not the conclusion that God is working towards. And again, hidden behind these statements is an assurance that undergirds his faith and pushes his thoughts toward God and strengthens his resolve of righteousness. So God had saved in the past and will save in the future, verse 5 and 6. The psalmists know that what God has done in the past is always an embodiment of his existence in the presence and future. He knows that God will act in the present as he has in the past. God will act out of loving kindness. That God is trying to be kind to sinners as God has shown kindness to him. Psalm 14, quoted in Psalm or Romans 3, there's none who does good, no, not one. The psalmist is not unaware that even he has been shown great mercies from God. Very aware of that. And so he knows, just as God has been kind to him, God for a time is also extending that kindness to others. But now he gets to be a part of that process. The reality is, it's very hard. The reality is, being the target of the forces of wickedness means added suffering because of God's promise, not less. But it means, because of being in the blessed condition, that we are overwhelmingly able to conquer through him who has loved us. Um, God will redeem his people. If you go back to Psalm uh, 11, some translations say, his countenance beholds the upright. New American Standard says, the upright will behold his face. The psalmists always are being progressively pushed to look ahead to look toward the promised exaltation that they know God is faithful to accomplish. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. As I read this scripture, just consider this window into the Psalms that we read, that this short passage summarizes every idea that we just talked about. And what I'd like to do is read this scripture as the invitation and we'll stand and sing after reading that scripture. So if anybody has any needs... If anybody would like to respond to the gospel call, as we stand and sing, that would be an appropriate time. Let's read 1 Peter 5, 6 through, uh, 6 through 12, I'm sorry. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, 
be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world after you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.